This is a Mortarbox Media Podcast. For more podcasts and to learn how we can help you create your own, visit mortarboxmedia.com. Hey guys, it's Adam here, uh, just, you know, doing the thing that I do. Welcome to another episode of Madison Story Slam, the podcast where we hear wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stories from people just like you. They're true stories, always true, or at least I hope they are. That's the rules when we do Story Slam, but I guess you never know. Hey, before we get to the stories, I just want to get down to just a little bit of business. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please hit the subscribe button. While you're there, leave a rating and a review. Ratings help the show grow. It helps people find the show. And reviews help me know what you like and maybe what you'd like to see different about the show. If you want to support us even more, you can go to patreon.com slash madisonstoryslam. Big shout out to all of our current Patreon subscribers. Hey, big deal coming up on Saturday, February 15th. It's our fifth birthday. That's right. Madison Story Slam has been doing this thing for five whole years, and we are celebrating with a big party at the Wilmar Center in Madison, Wisconsin. Doors will be open at 6. Stories will start at 7. There's going to be some other fun stuff planned, but uh, I have got 15 or so of my favorite storytellers telling some of my favorite stories from them, and you won't want to miss it. Come early, get a seat, get a table, and all that. I can't wait for it. Hope to see you there. On today's episode of the show, we're going to hear two very different stories told by the same storyteller, Dave Nelson. Here we go. Okay, last month I told a funny story. Today I have a sweet but scandalous story about infidelity. It's secondhand, so I'm not in trouble. (laughs) Secondhand. but But it comes from my grandmother. So now I turn to the camera and I tell my father to turn off Facebook and leave it alone for this story, we'll be fine. Uh, The last few years of my grandmother's life, she lived in 95, but the last couple of years I would fly into Los Angeles and I would rent a convertible. I couldn't afford to fly to Los Angeles, I couldn't afford a convertible, but I didn't need her to know that. Right? I go over to the, to the home where she was uh, basically incapacitated, and they would bring her out to the car and prop her up with flowers, flowers, pillows. Uh, uh, the flowers will come in later. Um, and we would drive the coast. I don't mean just a little. We would drive the coast, Highway 1, up and down, wherever you want to go, Grandma. At this point, she was living off chocolate, and she was 93, and we were having a great time. We'd do it Saturday and Sunday when I visited. Well, she started to tell me stories. Not the same kind of stories I got when I was four, right? She was in and out of kind of a fugue state. And in that going in and out, she would tell me things you don't usually tell your grandson. And I would just drive and look over and look over and get the story. And one time she says to me, you know your grandfather had another woman. I said, oh, tell me, Grandma. Tell me a little bit about this. She says, okay, it's a little bit after the war. So we're talking about the late 40s in Chicago. And she suspects something going on. 
So imagine it's Chicago, 1940-something, 48, let's say, and she follows my grandfather and this other woman into a bar. Now, my grandfather would have been in a cool-looking suit with a hat. My grandmother would have had a skirt and a nice blouse and a string of pearls. These guys knew how to do it. She follows him in. She finds them. She comes up, and she sits down right next to him. And she says, and I'm not going to say his name, um, you have to choose her or me. Now, this is the 40s. Women don't have a ton of options, so this is particularly badass. She's staring him straight in the eye and saying, you choose. She might have walked before, and I should go on to say that these two had an amazing relationship, and they were kind to each other, but, but this happened. And he said, I choose you, and she said, okay, I'm going to give you two five minutes, then you're never going to see each other again, and we're walking out of here. Damn, Grandma. We drive a little more, we stop for some chocolate, and she says, David, tomorrow I'm going to tell you my story. <laughs> okay, Grandma. <laughs> sure. I drop her off, they get her out of the pillows, they take her inside, and here's when I help her get in. Her room, as usual, is set with beautiful flowers. Beautiful flowers. I go home, I'm in a hotel room, and I think about this. I can't sleep too much. I'm really getting kind of, what's going to happen tomorrow? So that I, I, I don't know how much I sleep, but I get in the car, and I'm driving, and I'm just waiting, and she says, his name was John. Okay. So I'm driving, my hands tied against the wheel. I'm both excited to hear this and nervous and confused. I don't know what's going on. And she said, you know my boss? Well... Her boss took her out to lunch one day. She was the executive secretary in an investment firm, the top as you could go for a, a woman at, at her stage in the last century. Just an amazing woman. And Mr. DeGroat, I'll say his name, uh, took her out to lunch to meet a war buddy. I assume World War II, not positive. And these three have the best time. So this would have been the 60s. So we've seen Mad Men, right? We're talking three martini lunches. They're having a good time. And she hits it off with this man. Hits it off. So they go out to lunch a few more times. And eventually John and her are having lunch, just the two of them. And this is when she turns to me and she says, of course, nothing happened. I don't know. I'm going to let you, as the, the audience and the listeners, decide if nothing happened. I did not ask. Um, she did not offer. But these two cared about each other a lot. And for years and years, they met for lunch and talked on the phone. And whatever else happened, I don't know, until John has a stroke. John is in the hospital, and my grandmother races to his side. He's had a stroke, and he cannot move part of his body, and he is drooling, and he is a proud man, and he says, you have to go away. We can't see each other again. I can't see anybody like this. So my grandmother protests, and he says, I mean it. You cannot. So they now meet over telephone for years and years. My grandfather at this point knows about it. There's some man in a hospital, and I'll tell you, my grandmother and my grandfather had a great relationship. They're on the phone, and they're talking, and they care about each other, and she's there for him until eventually he dies. I never heard this story. 
Another 10 years passes. My grandfather at 95, he passes away. And he passed away, I think it was like New Year's Eve or, or right before that. And the next Valentine's Day, a dozen roses show up at her door. And the card says, love John. And she doesn't know what's going on. How could this be? Until Easter comes around and another bouquet of flowers comes. Memories, John. And every major holiday and birthday for the rest of her life, an enormous bouquet of flowers came. Now, my grandmother is a woman of faculty and drive, and this would not be a mystery for long, so she looks into it. She discovers that this man set up a trust, a detective, an attorney, so that as the first holiday after my grandfather passed away, she would receive flowers every single holiday and every day that mattered to her for the rest of her life. Now, I don't know what happened. I don't know the full story. But these two people loved each other in some way, right? And I can tell you that I know my grandmother. I know my grandmother the way you would know a grandmother if you're four. She took me to Sears, and she bought me popcorn and clothes and toys and told me funny stories. But somebody else knew my grandmother in a whole different way, a way that shaped his life in a way that was probably the last thing he thought about in his life. And in that car, as I was driving, I thought what it was a blessing to me to know this story and for my grandmother to have him in his life. And I don't care about the details. There is love there. And that meant so much to me. Thank you. Oh, Dave. Love his stories so much, you can actually see him. He is one of the featured storytellers at our five-year anniversary party on Saturday, February 15th. I know it's the day after Valentine's Day. It's Valentine's Day weekend. But what could be more romantic than hearing Dave share one of his great stories, whether it be about Jay Stromboli, his love affair with a spiral ham, or his grandmother's extramarital affairs? I tell you, there is nothing more romantic. We really are super excited about February 15th. It's going to be a really great time. Like I said, Dave's telling his story. Ben Klebzig, Bradley Glassell, Charles Payne, uh, David Heinen, Graham Callis, Jessica Regan, Melissa Hammond, Tyson Purcell, Zachary Shea, and many more. They're all telling stories, and it's just going to be really a wonderful, wonderful time. We can't wait. We're going to have food. As always, we're going to have Ale Asylum beer. And hopefully, we'll have you. If you have ever been impacted by what we do here at Madison Story Slam, we want you to come on out Saturday, February 15th at the Wilmar Center in Madison, Wisconsin. Doors at 6. Stories start promptly at 7. Now, another story from Dave. So I think we've all said holy shit in different ways, right? A couple days ago, I had some really good pho. I think that's how you say it. It's like, holy shit, this is really good soup. <laughs> I've also had those moments where I said, holy shit, look at that. And, and, and those moments where something changed, something big changed in me. 
And most recently, I was driving down the Beltline. It was after work, maybe 5.30. We're going maybe five miles an hour, as we do on that, (laughs) headed east. Except for this car in the far left shoulder. It's going 70. It's going so fast. And people are honking, and I can hear the yelling. And this car clips another car and hits that concrete median that we've all looked at. It kind of sputters to a stop. And everybody else is a little bit behind me. I was a little bit ahead. And they're stopped. And and there's like smoke and horns blasting behind me. And so I swerve left and and park a little bit ahead of her. Her. It will be a her. And I get out of the car. And I can see this mangled car up ahead. And I start to run towards the car, like you do when you don't really know what you're going to do, but you're going to get there and figure it out. Another car is stopped, and I yell, call, call 911, call 911. But they're already on it. They're dialing. And I get to that car, and I look into the window, and I see a woman between 16 and 36, depending on how hard she's been living, you know, when you can't really tell. And I say, are you okay? Are you okay? And she laughs. She's fiddling with the gear shifts, and she laughs. And she looks at me, and she's got these teary eyes that were probably crying before the crash. And she says, fuck you. I said, okay. I can tell she's not going to go anywhere. She's working this gear shift. The car is stopped. And I'm going to run back. I'm going to run back and tell the person I'm calling 911 what I know. And I start running back. And as I'm almost there, I, I look over my shoulder. And the woman's now out of the car. And she's climbing that concrete median to get to the other side and run across the traffic and get away. Now, I don't know about about you, but when I see something like that, there's this dad voice that takes over. And I've yelled this before. I yell, I've got to move this away because it's loud. I yell, no! Stop! Even more guttural than that. Just this, no, stop! The best dad voice I got. (laughs) And she does. And she gets back down and she waits for me next to the median. And I, I run up to her and I look at her face. And I should have said what I saw before when I first saw her. Because I could tell looking at her when I first saw her, that there was probably some substance use going on, but that wasn't the start of it. She was low, that low point, that worst place you can go, that dark room that just hurts and there's no way out but maybe driving your car into a median. And I know that face. I know that face real fucking well. And I grab her and I say, What's your name? And she says, Melanie. And I say, Melanie, I'm Dave. Let's just sit here. We're going to be okay. And she says, you don't understand. You don't understand. And she runs back into traffic. And there's this big, of course, it's got to be, right? This big semi-truck just coming at us. But luckily, Melanie's small, and I'm extra large. And I grab Melanie, and I pick her up, and we go back to the median. And I'm pretty sure I'm holding her off the ground. And I'm just holding on to her, because I'm feeling something with Melanie. And she says, you don't understand. I want to die. I want to die. And I remember that face that she had, because I've had that face, and I've wanted to die. I've wanted to drive 70 and hit a median. 
I wanted to go off a cliff. I wanted to take the drugs that I could and just stop hurting or maybe, maybe just go away. But I say, Melanie, I know you want to die. Sometimes I want to die too. But we're not going to die, Melanie. And she says, could you give me a hug? And I kind of am. <laughs> but I gently put her back down and, and I'm hugging Melanie and she's hugging me. And I can't remember the conversation exactly, but it's we're both crying. We're crying because this is a person who's exactly where I've been so many goddamn times in my life when I just wanted to turn everything off. And I say, Melanie, let's just wait. Let's just wait. And I know they've called 911 and they're going to come in. And I'm hanging on to Melanie. And the first police officer comes up. And the police officers are smiling because we're not setting off any triggers. We're just hugging each other, standing by the side of the road. But I can tell you, white privilege only goes so far. Because Melanie turns to him and says, fuck you, pig, I hate you. And I say, Melanie, no. That's not what we do, Melanie. But I know Melanie, and I know me, and yes, that's what we do. Sometimes that's what we do. And he says, all right, I'm going to be right back. And he leaves. And I know where he's going. He's going to get back up, right? Because he doesn't want to fight Melanie in the street. And he's not sure who the hell I am. So he leaves. And now Melanie, who's been here just as often as I've been here more, starts doing that kicking and elbowing. And she wants to go into traffic again. And I'm saying, no, Melanie, no. We're we're just going to stay here. We're just going to stay here, Melanie. And she's fighting And I don't know how long, but it feels like forever. It's just her and I and the side of the road and the traffic coming by. And the people driving by are not happy with me and Melanie. They're yelling, fuck you assholes, you could have killed somebody. And yes, somebody says, I hope you die. But we're not going to die. We're not going to die. Melanie and I are not going to die. Now three or four cops come up, and they tell me to let go of Melanie. And I don't want to let go of Melanie. I want to hold Melanie. I want to be holding Melanie right now. Right here, I wish I was holding Melanie. But they say let go, and I do, because the cops, I let go. And she runs in the traffic, but they take her down. Not like I grabbed her, they take her down. And these cops are not all the same. One is, sort of has her hand on, on her shoulder and is, is asking if she's okay. But another one has her arm wrenched behind her back. And another one is grinding her face into the concrete. And I can remember that a few minutes ago, I had told Melanie, I had said, Melanie, we're going to be okay. But I didn't know if we were going to be okay. I didn't know if Melanie was going to be okay. I don't know if I'm going to be okay. And Melly yells into the air. She yells, you're a liar. And I am a liar. I told her we were going to be fine and people were going to come and they were going to help her. And that's not what's happening. And they put her on a, like a gurney and they strap her in and they cuff her in and they take her away. And I'm thinking, no, could you just bring her back to me? Could I just hold Melanie? But I don't. And she's gone. And I don't know where she is. I know she has that pain in her stomach that I have. And I know she might get better. 
But I know that day in that dark room come back. Because Mel and I, and I, we got that holy shit moment together. We go through that and it comes back. And she's gone. And I miss her. And I hope she's okay. Thank you. Hey, that is a very, very powerful story told by Dave Nelson. You can actually see him this week at Tragedy Plus Time Equals Comedy. He'll be live at the venue on Winnebago for that event. Put on and hosted by Tyson Purcell. It's uh, people telling stories and some stand-up comics comics doing some stand-up comedy. And uh, go support Dave if you liked either of those stories. You can go. I believe tickets are $5. It may be $10. I don't know. You can find the event on Facebook. Just search for Tragedy Plus Time equals comedy. Hey, one last reminder. Saturday, February 15th, we are hosting our five-year anniversary birthday, whatever you want to call it. We've been doing this for five years, and I can't believe it. I've had such a blast these last five years, and it's been so amazing to watch this community grow and take shape. And uh, I've made so many good friends, and I hope all of you good friends come and hang out with us on Saturday, February 15th at the Wilmar Center in Madison, Wisconsin. Doors at 6, stories at 7. There's going to be so many good stories. Such good beer from Ala Asylum and some good food. Hey, that's it for today's episode. As always, guys... I love you.